chapter one of washington and his comrades in arms this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. washington and his comrades in arms by george wrong chapter one the commander-in-chief moving among the members of the second continental congress which met at philadelphia in may seventeen seventy five was one and but one military figure george washington alone attended the sittings in uniform this colonel from virginia now in his forty-fourth year was a great landholder an owner of slaves an anglican churchman an aristocrat everything that stands in in contrast with the type of a revolutionary radical yet from the first he had been an outspoken and uncompromising champion of the colonial cause when the tax was imposed on tea he had abolished the use of tea in his own household and when war was imminent he had talked of recruiting a thousand men at his own expense and marching to boston his steady wearing of the uniform seemed indeed to show that he regarded the issue as hardly less military than political the clash at lexington on the nineteenth of april had made vivid the reality of war passions ran high for years there had been tension long disputes about buying british stamps to put on american legal papers about duties on glass and paint and paper and above all tea boston had shown turbulent defiance and to hold boston down british soldiers had been quartered on the inhabitants in the proportion of one soldier for five of the populace a great and annoying burden and now british soldiers had killed americans who stood barring their way on lexington green even calm benjamin franklin spoke later of the hands of british ministers as red wet and dropping with blood americans never forgot the fresh graves made on that day there were it is true more british than american graves but the british were regarded as the aggressors if the rest of the colonies were to join in the struggle they must have a common leader who should he be in june while the continental congress faced this question at philadelphia events at boston made the need of a leader more urgent boston was besieged by american volunteers under the command of general artemus ward the siege had lasted for two months each side watching the other at long range general gage the british commander had the sea open to him and a finely tempered army upon which he could rely the opposite was true of his opponents they were a motley host rather than an army they had few guns and almost no powder idle waiting since the fight at lexington made untrained troops restless and anxious to go home nothing holds an army together like real war and shrewd officers knew that they must give the men some hard task to keep up their fighting spirit it was rumored that gage was preparing an aggressive movement from boston which might mean pillage and massacre in the surrounding country and it was decided to draw in closer to boston to give 
gauge a diversion and prove the mettle of the patriot army so on the evening of june sixteenth seventeen seventy five there was a stir of preparation in the american camp at cambridge and late at night the men fell in near harvard college across the charles river north from boston on a peninsula lay the village of charlestown and rising behind it was breed's hill about seventy-four feet high extending northeastward to the higher elevation of bunker hill the peninsula could be reached from cambridge only by a narrow neck of land easily swept by british floating batteries lying off the shore in the dark the american force of twelve hundred men under colonel prescott marched to this neck of land and then advanced half a mile southward to breed's hill prescott was an old campaigner of the seven years war he had six cannon and his troops were commanded by experienced officers israel putnam was skilful in irregular frontier fighting and nathaniel green destined to prove himself the best man in the american army next to washington himself could furnish sage military counsel derived from much thought and reading thus it happened that on the morning of the seventeenth of june general gage in boston awoke to a surprise he had refused to believe that he was shut up in boston it suited his convenience to stay there until a plan of campaign should be evolved by his superiors in london but he was certain that when he liked he could with his disciplined battalions brush away the besieging army now he saw the american force on breed's hill throwing up a defiant and menacing redoubt and entrenchments gage did not hesitate the bold aggressors must be driven away at once he detailed for the enterprise william howe the officer destined soon to be his successor in the command at boston howe was a brave and experienced soldier he had been a friend of wolfe and had led the party of twenty-four men who had first climbed the cliff at quebec on the great day when wolfe fell victorious he was the younger brother of that beloved lord howe who had fallen at ticonderoga and to whose memory massachusetts had reared a monument in westminster abbey gage gave him in all some twenty-five hundred men and at about two in the afternoon this force was landed at charlestown the little town was soon aflame and the smoke helped to conceal howe's movements the day was boiling hot and the soldiers carried heavy packs with food for three days for they intended to, to camp on bunker hill straight up breed's hill they marched wading through long grass sometimes to their knees and throwing down the fences on the hillside the british knew that raw troops were likely to scatter their fire on a foe still out of range and they counted on a rapid bayonet charge against men helpless with empty rifles this expectation was disappointed the americans had in front of them a barricade and israel putnam was there threatening dire things to any one who should fire before he could see the whites of the eyes of the advancing soldiery as the british came on there was a terrific discharge of musketry at twenty yards repeated again and again as they either halted or drew back the slaughter was terrible british officers hardened in war declared long afterward that they had never seen carnage like that of this fight 
the american riflemen had been told to aim especially at the british officers easily known by their uniforms and one rifleman is said to have shot twenty officers before he was himself killed lord rawdon who played a considerable part in the war and was later as marquis of hastings viceroy of india used to tell of his terror as he fought in the british line suddenly a soldier was shot dead by his side and when he saw the man quiet at his feet he said is death nothing but this and henceforth had no fear when the first attack by the british was checked they retired but with dogged resolve they reformed and again charged up the hill only a second time to be repulsed the third time they were more cautious they began to work round to the weaker defences of the american left where were no redoubts and entrenchments like those on the right by this time british ships were throwing shells among the americans charlestown was burning the great column of black smoke the incessant roar of cannon and the dreadful scenes of carnage had affected the defenders they wavered and on the third british charge having exhausted their ammunition they fled from the hill in confusion back to the narrow neck of land half a mile away swept now by a british floating battery general burgoyne wrote that in the third attack the discipline and courage of the british private soldiers also broke down and that when the redoubt was carried the officers of some corps were almost alone the british stood victorious at bunker hill it was however a costly victory more than a thousand men nearly half of the attacking force had fallen with an undue proportion of officers philadelphia far away did not know what was happening when two days before the battle of bunker hill the continental congress settled the question of a leader for a national army on the fifteenth of june john adams of massachusetts rose and moved that the congress should adopt as its own the army before boston and that it should name washington as commander-in-chief adams had deeply pondered the problem he was certain that new england would remain united and decided in the struggle but he was not so sure of the other colonies to have a leader from beyond new england would make for continental unity virginia next to massachusetts had stood in the forefront of the movement and virginia was fortunate in having in the congress one whose fame as a soldier ran through all the colonies there was something to be said for choosing a commander from the colony which began the struggle and adams knew that his colleague from massachusetts john hancock a man of wealth and importance desired the post he was conspicuous enough to be president of the congress adams says that when he made his motion naming a virginian he saw in hancock's face mortification and resentment he saw too that washington hurriedly left the room when his name was mentioned there could be no doubt as to what the congress would do unquestionably washington was the fittest man for the post twenty years earlier he had seen important service in the war with france his position and character commanded universal aspect the congress adopted unanimously the motion of adams and it only remained to be seen whether washington would accept on the next day he came to the sitting with his mind made up the members he said would bear witness to his declaration that he thought himself unfit for the task since however they called him he would try to do his duty he would take the command but he would accept no pay beyond his expenses 
thus it was that washington became a great national figure the man who had long worn the king's uniform was now his deadliest enemy and it is probably true that after this step nothing could have restored the old relations and reunited the british empire the broken vessel could not be made whole washington spent only a few days in getting ready to take over his new command on the twenty first of june four days after bunker hill he set out from philadelphia the colonies were in truth very remote from each other the journey to boston was tedious in the previous year john adams had travelled in the other direction to the congress at philadelphia and in his journal he notes as if he were travelling in foreign lands the strange manners and customs of the other colonies the journey so momentous to adams was not new to washington some twenty years earlier the young virginian officer had travelled as far as boston in the service of king george the second now he was leader in the war against king george the third in new jersey new york and connecticut he was received impressively in the warm summer weather the roads were good enough but many of the rivers were not bridged and could be crossed only by ferries or at fords it took nearly a fortnight to reach boston washington had ridden only twenty miles on his long journey when the news reached him of the fight at bunker hill the question which he asked anxiously shows what was in his mind did the militia fight when the answer was yes he said with relief the liberties of the country are safe he reached cambridge on the second of july and on the following day was the chief figure in a striking ceremony in the presence of a vast crowd and of the motley army of volunteers which was now to be called the american army washington assumed the command he sat on horseback under an elm tree and an observer noted that his appearance was truly noble and majestic this was milder praise than that given a little later by a london paper which said there is not a king in europe but would look like a valet de chambre by his side new england having seen him was henceforth wholly on his side his traditions were not those of the puritans of the ephraims and the abijas of the volunteer army men whose old testament names tell something of the rigor of the puritan view of life washington a sharer in the free and often careless hospitality of his native virginia had a different outlook in his personal discipline however he was not less puritan than the strictest of new englanders the coming years were to show that a great leader had taken his fitting place washington born in seventeen thirty two had been trained in self-reliance for he had been fatherless from childhood at the age of sixteen he was working at the profession largely self-taught of a surveyor of land at the age of twenty-seven he married martha curtis a rich widow with children though her marriage with washington was childless his estate on the potomac river three hundred miles from the open sea recently named mount vernon had been in the family for nearly a hundred years there were twenty-five hundred acres at mount vernon with ten miles of frontage on the tidal river the virginia planters were a land-owning gentry when washington died he had more than sixty thousand acres the growing of tobacco the one vital industry of the virginia of the time with its half million people was connected with the ownership of land on their great estates the planters lived remote with a mail perhaps every fortnight 
there were no large towns no great factories nearly half of the population consisted of negro slaves it is one of the ironies of history that the chief leader in a war marked by a passion for liberty was a member of a society in which as another of its members jefferson the author of the declaration of independence said there was on the one hand the most insulting despotism and on the other the most degrading submission the virginian landowners were more absolute masters than the proudest lords of medieval england these feudal lords had serfs on their land the serfs were attached to the soil and were sold to a new master with the soil they were not however property without human rights on the other hand the slaves of the virginian master were property like his horses they could not even call wife and children their own for these might be sold at will it arouses a strange emotion now when we find washington offering to exchange a negro for hogsheads of molasses and rum and writing that the man would bring a good price if kept clean and trimmed up a little when offered for sale in early life washington had had very little of formal education he knew no language but english when he became world-famous and his friend lafayette urged him to visit france he refused because he would seem uncouth if unable to speak the french tongue like another great soldier the duke of wellington he was always careful about his dress there was in him a silent pride which would brook nothing derogatory to his dignity no one could be more methodical he kept his accounts rigorously entering even the cost of repairing a hairpin for a ward he was a keen farmer and it is amusing to find him recording in his careful journal that there are eight hundred and forty four thousand eight hundred seeds of new river grass to the pound troy and so determining how many should be sown to the acre not many youths would write out as did washington apparently from french sources and read and re-read elaborate rules of civility and decent behaviour in company and conversation in the fashion of the age of chesterfield they portray the perfect gentleman he is always to remember the presence of others and not to move read or speak without considering what may be due to them in the true spirit of the time he is to learn to defer to persons of superior quality tactless laughter at his own wit jests that have a sting of idle gossip are to be avoided reproof is to be given not in anger but in a sweet and mild temper the rules descend even to manners at table and are a revelation of care in self-discipline we might imagine oliver cromwell drawing up such rules but not napoleon or wellington the class to which washington belonged prided itself on good birth and good breeding we picture him as austere but like oliver cromwell whom in some respects he resembles he was very human in his personal relations he liked a glass of wine he was fond of dancing and he went to the theatre even on sunday he was too something of a ladies man he can be downright impudent sometimes wrote a southern lady such impudence fanny as you and i like in old age he loved to have the young and gay about him he could break into furious oaths and no one was a better master of what we may call honourable guile in dealing with wily savages in circulating falsehoods that would deceive the enemy in time of war or in pursuing a business advantage he played cards for money and carefully entered loss and gain in his accounts he loved horse-racing and horses and nothing pleased him more than to talk of that noble animal he kept hounds and until his burden of cares became too great was an eager devotee of hunting 
his shooting was of a type more heroic than that of an english squire spending a day on a moor with guests and gamekeepers and returning to comfort in the evening washington went off on expeditions into the forest lasting many days and shared the life in the woods of rough men sleeping often in the open air happy he wrote is he who gets the berth nearest the fire he could spend a happy day in admiring the trees and the richness of the land on a neighbor's estate always his thoughts were turning to the soil there was poetry in him it was said of napoleon that the one approach to poetry in all his writings is the phrase the spring is at last appearing and the leaves are beginning to sprout washington on the other hand brooded over the mysteries of life he pictured to himself the serenity of a calm old age and always dared to look death squarely in the face he was sensitive to human passion and he felt the wonder of nature in all her ways her bounteous response in growth to the skill of man the delight of improving the earth in contrast with the vain glory gained by ravaging it in war his most striking characteristics were energy and decision united often with strong likes and dislikes his clever secretary alexander hamilton found as he said that his chief was not remarkable for good temper and resigned his post because of an impatient rebuke when a young man serving in the army of virginia washington had many a tussle with the obstinate scottish governor dinwiddie who thought his vehemence unmannerly and ungrateful gilbert stuart who painted several of his portraits said that his features showed strong passions and that had he not learned self-restraint his temper would have been savage this discipline he acquired the task was not easy but in time he was able to say with truth i have no resentments and his self-control became so perfect as to be almost uncanny the assumption that washington fought against an england grown decadent is not justified to admit this would be to make his task seem lighter than it really was no doubt many of the rich aristocracy spent idle days of pleasure-seeking with the comfortable conviction that they could discharge their duties to society by merely existing since their luxury made work and the more they indulged themselves the more happy and profitable employment would their many dependents enjoy the eighteenth century was however a wonderful epoch in england agriculture became a new thing under the leadership of great landowners like lord townsend and coke of norfolk already was abroad in society a divine discontent at existing abuses it brought warring hastings to trial on the charge of plundering india it attacked slavery the cruelty of the criminal law which sent children to execution for the theft of a few pennies the brutality of the prisons the torpid indifference of the church to the needs of the masses new inventions were beginning the age of machinery the reform of parliament votes for the toiling masses and a thousand other improvements were being urged it was a vigorous rich and arrogant england which washington confronted it is sometimes said of washington that he was an english country gentleman a gentleman he was but with an experience and training quite unlike that of a gentleman in england the young heir to the english estate might or might not go to a university he could like the young charles james fox become a scholar but like fox who knew some of the virtues and all the supposed gentlemanly vices he might dissipate his energies in hunting gambling and cock-fighting he would almost certainly make the grand tour of europe and if he had little latin and less greek he was pretty certain to have some familiarity with paris and a smattering of french the eighteenth century was a period of magnificent living in england the great landowner then as now the magnate of his neighbourhood was likely to rear 
if he did not inherit one of those vast palaces which are to-day burdened so costly to the heirs of their builders at the beginning of the century the nation to honour marlborough for his victories could think of nothing better than to give him half a million pounds to build a palace even with the colossal wealth produced by modern industry we should be staggered at a residence costing millions of dollars yet the duke of devonshire rivalled at chatsworth and lord leicester at holcombe marlborough's building at blenheim and many other costly palaces were erected during the following half-century their owners sometimes built in order to surpass a neighbour in grandeur and to this day great estates are encumbered by the debts thus incurred in vain show the heir to such a property was reared in a pomp and luxury undreamed of by the frugal young planter of virginia of working for a livelihood in the sense in which washington knew it the young englishman of great estate would never dream the atlantic is a broad sea and even in our own day when instant messages flash across it and man himself can fly from shore to shore in less than a score of hours it is not easy for those on one strand to understand the thought of those on the other every community evolves its own spirit not easily to be apprehended by the onlooker the state of society in america was vitally different from that in england the plain living of virginia was in sharp contrast with the magnificence and ease of england it is true that we hear of plate and elaborate furniture of servants in livery and much drinking of port and madeira among the virginians they had good horses driving as often they did with six in a carriage they seemed to keep up regal style spaces were wide in a country where one great landowner lord fairfax held no less than five million acres houses lay isolated and remote and a gentleman dining out would sometimes drive his elaborate equipage from twenty to fifty miles there was a tradition of lavish hospitality of gallant men and fair women and sometimes of hard and riotous living many of the houses were however in a state of decay with leaking roofs battered doors and windows and shabby furniture to own land in virginia did not mean to live in luxurious ease land brought in truth no very large income it was easier to break new land than to fertilize that long in use an acre yielded only eight or ten bushels of wheat in england the land was more fruitful one who was only a tenant on the estate of coke of norfolk died worth one hundred and fifty thousand pounds and coke himself had the income of a prince when washington died he was reputed one of the richest men in america and yet his estate was hardly equal to that of coke's tenant washington was a good farmer inventive and enterprising but he had difficulties which ruined many of his neighbors to-day much of his infertile estate of mount vernon would hardly grow enough to pay the taxes when washington desired a gardener or a bricklayer or a carpenter he usually had to buy him in the form of a convict or of a negro slave or of a white man indentured for a term of years such labor required eternal vigilance the negro himself property had no respect for it in others he stole when he could and worked only when the eyes of a master were upon him if left in charge of plants or of stock he was likely to let them perish for lack of water washington's losses of cattle horses and sheep from this cause were enormous the neglected cattle gave so little milk that at one time washington with a hundred cows had to buy his butter negroes feigned sickness for weeks at a time a visitor noted that washington spoke to his slaves with a stern harshness no doubt it was necessary the management of this intractable material brought training in command if washington could make negroes efficient and farming pay in virginia he need hardly be afraid to meet any other type of difficulty from the first he was satisfied that the colonies had before them a difficult struggle 
many still refused to believe that there was really a state of war lexington and bunker hill might be regarded as unfortunate accidents to be explained away in an era of good feeling when each side should acknowledge the merits of the other and apologize for its own faults washington had few illusions of this kind he took the issue in a serious and even bitter spirit he knew nothing of the englishmen at home for he had never set foot outside of the colonies except to visit barbados with an invalid half-brother even then he noted that the gentlemen inhabitants whose hospitality and genteel behaviour he admired were discontented with the tone of the officials sent out from england from early life washington had seen much of british officers in america some of them had been men of high birth and station who treated the young colonial officer with due courtesy when however he had served on the staff of the unfortunate general braddock in the calamitous campaign of seventeen fifty five he had been offended by the tone of that leader probably it was in these days that washington first brooded over the contrast between the englishman and the virginian with obstinate complacency braddock had disregarded washington's counsels of prudence he showed arrogant confidence in his veteran troops and contempt for the amateur soldiers of whom washington was one in a wild country where rapid movement was the condition of success braddock would halt as washington said to level every mole hill and to erect bridges over every brook his transport was poor and washington a lover of horses chafed at what he called vile management of the horses by the british soldier when anything went wrong braddock blamed not the ineffective work of his own men but the supineness of virginia he looks upon the country washington wrote in wrath i believe as void of honor and honesty the hour of trial came in the fight of july seventeen fifty five when braddock was defeated and killed on the march to the ohio washington told his mother that in the fight the virginian troops stood their ground and were nearly all killed but the boasted regulars were struck with such a panic that they behaved with more cowardice than it is possible to conceive in the anger and resentment of this comment is found the spirit which made washington a champion of the colonial cause from the first hour of disagreement that was a fatal day in march seventeen sixty five when the british parliament voted that it was just and necessary that a revenue be raised in america washington was uncompromising after the tax on tea he derided our lordly masters in great britain no man he said should scruple for a moment to take up arms against the threatened tyranny he and his neighbors of fairfax county virginia took the trouble to tell the world by formal resolution on july eighteenth seventeen seventy four that they were descended not from a conquered but from a conquering people and that they claimed full equality with the people of great britain and like them would make their own laws and impose their own taxes they were not democrats they had no theories of equality but as gentlemen and men of fortune they would show to others the right path in the crisis which had arisen in this resolution spoke the proud spirit of washington and as he brooded over what was happening anger fortified his pride of the tories in boston some of them highly educated men who with sorrow were walking in what was to them the hard path of duty washington could say later that there never existed a more miserable set of beings than these wretched creatures the age of washington was one of bitter vehemence in political thought in england the good whig was taught that to deny whig doctrine was blasphemy that there was no truth or honesty on the other side and that no one should trust a tory 
and usually the good whig was true to the teaching he had received in america there had hitherto been no national politics issues had been local and passions thus confined exploded all the more fiercely franklin spoke of george the third as drinking long draughts of american blood and of the british people as so depraved and barbarous as to be the wickedest nation upon earth inspired by bloody and insatiable malice and wickedness to washington george the third was a tyrant his ministers were scoundrels and the british people were lost to every sense of virtue the evil of it is that for a posterity which listened to no other comment on the issues of the revolution such utterances instead of being understood as passing expressions of party bitterness were taken as the calm judgments of men held in reverence and awe posterity has agreed that there is nothing to be said for the coercing of the colonies so resolutely pressed by george the third and his ministers posterity can also however understand that the struggle was not between undiluted virtue on the one side and undiluted vice on the other some eighty years after the american revolution the republic created by the revolution endured the horrors of civil war rather than accept its own disruption in seventeen seventy six even the most liberal englishman felt a similar passion for the continued unity of the british empire time has reconciled all schools of thought to the unity lost in the case of the empire and to the unity preserved in the case of the republic but on the losing side in each case good men fought with deep conviction End of chapter one